There are a couple of introductory matters we should deal with when we go to study the book of Hebrews. The first that you'd ask of any book that you go to study in the Bible is who's the author? Now, you've probably heard it said many times, many places, in Bible studies and in sermons, the author of Hebrews says, or as the author of Hebrews has said this or that or the other thing, that has always sounded a little bit pretentious to me, the author of the Hebrews. Maybe that's just me. But the author is, of course, one of these mysteries that we will not know until we get to the kingdom of heaven with Jesus himself, who can tell us who was it that wrote down these beautiful words. Now, as a matter of opinion, I do think it is Paul, and I think that for two basic reasons, and you can take it or leave it, but the first reason is because the majority of the early church, the people closest to the writing of Hebrews, held by tradition that Paul was the author of Hebrews along with all the other epistles, the majority of the other epistles in the New Testament. The second reason is that the main reason that most people don't think it's Paul is because the style is so different than the other writings of Paul. But I would simply say this, that when I write a letter to a delinquent member of church, it sounds a lot different than when I write a newsletter article for the newsletter, and it sounds a lot different than when I write a sermon. So, you know, so be it. People have different styles when they write different types of things. Now, again, you can take or leave all of that. I'm not going to refer to the quote-unquote author of Hebrews. I'm just going to say Paul because that's what I think, but that's kind of an introductory matter for you. But that does lead us to the next introductory matter, which has a lot more pertinence for you in studying the book, which is the style that it is written in. And that is that Hebrews seems to be more than any other of the New Testament books, a sermon. It is a sermon addressed specifically to the Hebrew people. And we do know that many of Paul's epistles were read as sermons, but Hebrews itself seems to be almost a manuscript of sorts of a well-thought-out, rhetorically beautiful sermon. A long sermon, but a sermon nonetheless. And that means that it's in the context of the church's liturgy, that This book, if it is a sermon, which it does seem to be the way it reads, is in the context of the church's worship of song, the church's celebration of the Lord's Supper. And some of the things that we'll see, especially one of the things that we see tonight when Jesus is said to sing praises with his brothers, that is, you, who he calls his brothers, That takes on a whole different tone, doesn't it? And the final thing as kind of an introductory matter about the book of Hebrews that I think it's important to note is its connection to the Old Testament. You cannot read one or two lines of Hebrews without noting its deep connection to the Old Testament. Not only does Paul often quote the New Testament in here, 
But the entire purpose of the book is to preach to people who know the Old Testament really well. The book is all about these kind of Old Testament references about priests and sacrifices and so on and so forth. And the purpose of the book is to show that what Christ has accomplished in the new covenant secedes and supersedes and is better than that of the old covenant. It's not that the old covenant is bad or worse in any way. The old covenant was fantastic. But the new covenant is everything that was in the old covenant and more. It's better. You could summarize the book with that one word. It's better. Just in the few chapters that we're looking at tonight, we see that Christ is better than the angels, that Christ is a better Moses than Moses, that Christ is a better priest, that he's a better Sabbath rest. The list goes on. That's why we're singing the hymn, Not All the Blood of Beast on Jewish Altars Slain, because the blood of Christ is better blood. And so verse 1 starts right off with that idea. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. It is wonderful when you read about the Old Testament saints and the prophets and how God came and spoke to them in these wonderful theophanies or visions of the Lord, like Moses at the burning bush, or Elijah in the whispering voice. And sometimes we could think, wouldn't it be wonderful if God would just speak to us in that same divine, theophanic way? But the author of the Hebrews... See, I caught myself doing it because I grew up that way. Paul, who I think it is, says here that that was wonderful, but in a way it was piecemeal. Various times, various ways. Sometimes the prophets spoke louder. Sometimes the prophets went silent. And as you read through the Old Testament, you can see that this narrative of Christ is building and building and building throughout the history of the Old Testament. But it is kind of piecemeal. You're waiting for everything to be put together. All the ingredients are being thrown into the bowl and they're being mixed together as the Old Testament goes on. But we're waiting for the cake to come out of the oven, so to speak. And when Christ comes, when the word made flesh is born, he has spoken to us finally by his son. It is all put together finally in Christ. And it is odd to us sometimes, I think, to think this, but it is completely true that Christ's word that we have fully in the Holy Bible, both Old Testament and New together, and his sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, 
that these things are actually better and more sure and more permanent and more confident than the theophanies of old. That what we have in the word, in the preaching of the word and the sacraments is better in Jesus. And so Paul goes on, who is this Jesus? Who is this Christ who makes everything better? Whom God has spoken to us through, this Son of God. And he goes back to Genesis 1. The one whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power. You see, Jesus is a better Adam. He is the one who actually has dominion over the whole earth because it was through him that the whole thing was created. He is the one who is the express image of God. Adam was created in the image of God, but sin corrupted that image. But Jesus never lost that image. Jesus is the image because he is God. And he is the one who is upholding the whole world by the word of his power. He is God himself. And not only that, but we continue, he purged our sins and sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels. His inheritance as the Son of God is the whole world. It is eternal life. And that is a better inheritance than the angels get. Of course, the angels have life in God, but they do not own the world. They must bow down to the Creator. And so listen to Jesus. Look to this Jesus. He is the center of the Old Testament. He's the center of everything. Your whole life should revolve around the person and work of Jesus. This is something we're going to come back to over and over again. You're a co-heir with him. Notice everything that Paul says there about the inheritance that Christ has as the Son of God. He also says elsewhere, you're a co-heir by your baptism with Jesus. And really, that's what the rest of the book is that we've gotten through chapter one so far. The rest of the book is going to be about how are you a co-heir with Christ? And so chapter two, we continue. The father had planned all of this from the beginning. The goal of Christ, as we heard was to bring many sons to glory. And to do that, the Father called Jesus the, there's a couple different translations here, either the founder of your salvation or the captain of your salvation. And this is a very interesting verse here, that the Father made the captain of your salvation perfect through suffering. Hear that again. The Father made Jesus perfect through suffering. How is it that the Father could make Jesus perfect if he was already perfect? 
Well, that was his eternal plan. That the completion of who Jesus is, that for Jesus to be who Jesus is, he always had to come to the cross. Where do you have life or salvation? Well, look to the captain. If you want to know what direction you're going in or how to get off the boat in case of an emergency, look to the captain of the ship. If you want to know what the company is all about, look to the founder of the company. So look to the founder and the captain of your salvation. His entire purpose was to bring you to glory. And to bring you to glory, he had to come down in suffering. He had to suffer the wrath of God on the cross. It couldn't have been anything else. It's not like Jesus could have come down from heaven to earth, born in the flesh, and made some great feat of strength, lifted the most weight anyone's ever lifted, or signed some sort of contract with the devil to work all things out. He had to suffer. He had to bear the wrath that you deserved for your sin on the cross from God the Father. And in this, all things are made perfect. They are made complete. God's plan from eternity is fulfilled. In other words, nothing else matters if Christ didn't suffer. And we go on in that same passage to read that he, the one who suffered, the one who is made perfect in suffering, the one who not only created the world, but now saves you so that you might be in glory in the world, is not ashamed to call you brothers, to be your brother. And he sings about it. He cries out to his father in the midst of the holy congregation and says, in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And think about that. In the liturgy, when you come to church, when you come to worship Jesus, you're also not only worshiping Jesus, but you're also worshiping with him. When we sing praises to him, when we sing our hymns and our songs and our spiritual songs, we're singing with Jesus. When we say our father, we're saying that with our brother, Jesus. It's an amazing thing. And so, so far, just in chapters one and two, he is a better Adam. He speaks a better word. He has a better inheritance. He is a better captain and founder. He is a better sufferer. He is a better brother. And he's a better singer, too. But now, continuing on from chapter 2 to chapter 3, we find out maybe the most significant, better thing about Jesus. And that is that he is a better high priest And Moses, that through death, he destroys death and the devil so that he can aid us. You see, the high priest of old, Moses of old, they would offer 
the sacrifices of animals. They would offer the death of animals to give a temporary aid to the Israelites. Moses would offer up supplications to give a temporary aid to the Israelites. But Christ, who has become our high priest, makes the perfect sacrifice. The death that he offers is a sacrifice once for all. Paul said there that Moses had charge of a house, the house of the Israelites. And inasmuch as the head of the house had control of the house and could help the house, Christ's house is a better house. Because the house that Christ made is the house of all of creation. And when Christ, who is our high priest, cares for his house, when he sacrifices for his house, it is a sacrifice good for the whole thing, for all of creation. And so now he intercedes for us. Whenever you are tempted by sins of the world, whenever you are tempted by sins brought to you by the devil, whenever you are tempted by your own flesh. You have one who contends with God for you. You have one who knows what it's like to be tempted. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have a high priest you can go to. You have a high priest who will defend you at the throne of the judge. You have a high priest who will reconcile you with the Father everlasting. You have a high priest who will aid you in time of temptation and comfort you in the time of distress. You have a better Moses, a better high priest. And so what does all this mean? What is Paul's message to the Hebrews? I think three things we can take away, at least for tonight. One, Christ is the center of everything. He is better than everything. Not only better than the old covenant, not only better than everything that came before him, but definitely better than your hobbies, definitely better than your job, definitely better, even more central to your life than your family. He's able to provide more than all the money in the world. And so make him the center. Seek him as the center. Put him in the center. Revolve your life. Take a look at your schedule. Take a look at your time and your money. Put him at the center of everything. And two, seek Jesus. Paul is not afraid to use this kind of language. Maybe it makes some Lutheran ears a little uncomfortable. But consider him. Look at him. Think about him. See him. Hear him. Taste him. 
look to his word. Because we can be confident. We can be confident that he's there ready to be found. We can be confident that he's there already speaking his word. We can be confident that he's there hanging on the cross for us to look at for the salvation of our sins. And so look to him. Consider him. And three, to quote verse 14 of verse chapter 4, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What we have in the confession of our faith, what we have in the word, what we have in this church is priceless. It is our life. And so hold on to it. Do not let it go. Keep it at the center. And when persecution comes, when suffering comes, even when death itself assails us, when the devil tempts us, Jesus, our great high priest, better than all things, he is our life. And he who tasted death has tasted death for you that in your death you might have glory. To him be all the honor, now and forever. Amen.